Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast where we share stories about music from all over the world. This is episode one of Travels in Music, and today I couldn't be happier to be talking to the world's leading Beatles historian and the author of Tune In, Mark Lewison. In addition to authoring Tune In and several other books about the Beatles, Mark has also written liner notes for several Paul McCartney and Beatles releases, and served as a consultant and researcher for the groundbreaking Beatles Anthology Project. Put simply, it's safe to say that no one on the planet knows more about the band than Mr. Lewison. In today's show, I talk to Mark about what made the Beatles so special, what it's like to interview Paul McCartney, the challenges involved in writing the definitive history of the band, and why Liverpool, England, of all places, had the world's only teenage rock music scene in the 1950s. It's fitting that this conversation is featured for episode one of Travels in Music, as it really was the Beatles that got me interested in travel and the world outside of my own northern Ontario, Canada, when I was a small child. For over 20 years, the Beatles have been my favorite band. I remember being six or seven when I fell in love with their music, and I started to wonder what life was like across the ocean in Liverpool, why America embraced the band with such gusto in 1964, and why the Beatles were later drawn to travel to India. On today's episode, Mark and I discuss all of these questions and more. And as someone who has studied the band in depth for much of the last 20 years, I really feel like I learned a lot, and I left our conversation with some fascinating new insights on the greatest rock and roll band in history. I first exchanged emails with Mark back in 2013 when I was working on my master's thesis, which included research on the Beatles' trips to India. I made several trips and spent several months in India collecting research materials, and I offered to share some of my research with Mark as he worked on the next volume of his three-part Beatles biography. It was really great to finally connect with him in real time via Skype. Before we begin, a quick note that you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Travels in Music, and you can find show notes, music recommendations, free articles, and much more at my website, travelsinmusic.com. So without any further ado... I really hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Beatles historian, Mark Lewison. I was waiting for your call. I was just listening to, you know, my name. Look up the number from the yes. anthology. Yeah, I, I think it's it's often um, underappreciated how funny that band could be. There's the thing about the Beatles is there's so much to appreciate about them that you can't appreciate all the things all the time. Mm. Um, so what happens is you alight on something and then think, my God, that's good. That little bit there, um, and the combination. The Beatles are a combination of millions of those little bits. Um, but you know, my name is, is a great track. 
Absolutely great track. It really is, and, and surprisingly, I would say, under-recognized by Beatles fans. But as you say, I'm sure every Beatles fan has their own version of, you know, why don't more people appreciate X? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one of my first interviews with Paul McCartney back in 1987, he told me that You Know My Name was his favorite Beatles track. And at the time, um, I, w- <laughs> I was fairly shocked. Um, quite reasonably so, I would imagine, considering how many other contenders there could have been. But I can absolutely see why it would be his favorite track. Um, and it's certainly one of my favorite tracks. Uh, and it's never actually been issued in its full form, even on the anthology. It was an edit, and I was pushing for the whole thing to come out, and George Harrison didn't want it in its full form. So it got trimmed again, even though the aim was to put it out for the first time in its full length. George George blocked while he was alive, obviously. He blocked a couple of other releases as well, um, some extremely rare releases, like one uh, recording I think they made it for an art show in 1967 that was supposed to be an anthology and, and, and wasn't. Certain things were blocked, but they were blocked for reasons that are quite complicated. And I, I have some insight into them because I was around those decisions at the time, but I'm not totally privy to them. Um, it's complicated when they decide what should be issued and what shouldn't be. The anthology was a huge breakthrough because they'd been against the issue of any unreleased material until that point. And then suddenly there's, um, well, basically three triple albums, if you call them vinyl records, certainly three double CDs. Um, But all the same, everything on those albums had to be agreed by all of them. And there, there were some things where they didn't all agree. And the Beatles ethos always was that minority rules. If one doesn't want something, it doesn't, but three do, it still won't happen. Hmm. Um, So certain things that Paul was pushing for in particular, which you're referring to Carnival of Light. Carnival of Light. Um, that recording there, we were, I was pushing for that to be on anthology too, um, with some resistance from a number of people on the team. Um, and it it certainly didn't get beyond George. I'm not sure it got beyond Ringo or Yoko either. Um, it was something that was going to potentially spotlight only Paul in a good way. And I don't know that that was something that collectively they wanted. Right. Right. Let's let's talk about Paul for a moment. You mentioned interviewing him earlier. If I'm not mistaken, you haven't been interviewing him for the current uh, series of biographies you're writing now. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, it is correct. Right. Um, so when's the last time you interviewed him? I'm just curious. Oh, 2002, I think. What? Just, just before I started this project. Okay. I'm I'm curious about what he's like as an interview subject because and this is just my impression I obviously I haven't interviewed him but he seems to me to be a little more um closed off and held back in in recent interviews I'd say over the past 15 years or so um than he has been in in, in past interviews if you look you know back in the 70s and 80s what is Paul like as an interview subject is he is he tough to get to um what is it uh like anybody, um, and that could include me at this very moment, it depends what kind of mood <laughs> the interviewee is in. Um, mostly, Paul is up for being interviewed. He's given more interviews probably than, well, certainly anyone else I can think of. I mean, he's done so many interviews for now more than 50 years. Um, he 
doesn't always show it, but I can hear in his voice and sometimes see with little looks in his eyes when he's not turned on by the questions. And that is actually most of the time. But if you get Paul and ask him good questions and he warms to those, you'll get a great interview from him. And it's it's wrong to say that he, he doesn't give good interviews because he does. But he, he thrives on skilled interviews with good questions and he doesn't often get that. Hmm. I wonder why but, that is. Most people who go to interview Paul are enthralled to the man mm. and and um, whatever they might have planned to say when they were outside is kind of deserts them when they get inside. Um, or indeed, people are just lazy and sloppy and don't do their work properly and don't realize that the questions they're asking, he's been asked umpteen times and is really weary of. Um, I mean, if Paul was a little bit more brusque, and that could, were actually said to people, well, for God's sake, ask me something better. We might actually get better interviews. But he's a polite guy um, in those situations and doesn't say it. So, um, but if, I mean, I've been waiting for someone to ask him, or and Ringo, um, and Olivia and Yoko, for that matter, things based on what they've read in Tune In. I mean, this book opens up thousands of new questions that they could be asked none of which they'll have been asked before and all of which could potentially get great answers um but no one's asking them i don't know why let's let's talk about some of your main questions right now i mean first off which part of the story are you focusing on sort of day to day right now uh i'm researching volume two of the trilogy but actually i'm researching volumes two and three because when you're researching, you don't you get what you can, where you can, while you can. You don't, for example, in my case, say, "Well, I'm only interested in 1963 to 66, so I'm not going to research anything from 67 because it's not relevant yet." If you're, I mean, I, I, I myself have drawn the dividing line there. The dividing line wasn't apparent when they were living these this history, so things are crossing the borders between books two and three all the time. And I'm just grabbing what I can. So, um, but my primary focus is 90 will pick up where volume one finished, which is new year's day, 1963. And we'll go for, well, four years or so, um, to the end of 66 or thereabouts. And then volume three, the research for that, which I'm, as I said, I'm doing now is 1967 or thereabouts to, <laughs> to I'm not quite sure where. Basically, I'm just looking for things that illuminate the history. And um, I'm finding them wherever I can, however I can. And they're pouring in. And um, the biggest problem I have is actually um, keeping on top of it all. So why take this on? I mean, what is it? Is it simply that you felt you felt that the story hasn't been told the way it deserved to be told? Or I, I'm curious, I guess, about the first moment that you decided, no, I need to do this. Is there a certain moment or experience you had that really cemented the idea that, no, I really need to, to pursue this? I always, I always felt the books on the Beatles weren't, the biographies of the Beatles weren't good enough. And I, I don't, that, that sounds disrespectful to Philip Norman and Hunter Davis and my predecessors in this field, but it, it's not meant to be disrespectful. It's just those books serve their purpose. But I, I felt that the Beatles biography needed to be done differently deeper broader wider um and it needed to be the product of of 
years of research rather than a year or two of research and and so uh, that's that's what i wanted to do i when those people who have read tune in and i've had wonderful feedback from people which i'm so grateful for and reviews too those people who have read tune in now know what it was that i saw or felt back in 2002 3 when i started this project i knew it could be like that and i knew it had never been like that and possibly would never be like that unless i did it um so i always envisaged it being pretty much what it is in tune in and um i i believe i can see that through for volumes two and three one other aspect of it is that me myself as a writer uh, I've been writing since the late 1970s. I began writing to write about the Beatles because there were things I needed to say um, and research I was doing that I needed to impart. But I basically cut my teeth writing short pieces. I was writing reference books. I was writing books where you would look up something um, for information. I wasn't writing long-form narratives and didn't believe that I had the ability to do it. Um, I was trying, an editor in New York in 1989 tried to persuade me that I could do it. And I honestly, I said to him, I can't do that. Uh, what I do is chronicle books, reference books, encyclopedias. I don't necessarily do biographies. Uh, I needed to find myself. I needed to grow up. I needed to establish what I could do and what I couldn't do and stretch myself. And over the intervening years, I did just that. And by 2002, I knew I could write biography, and then I knew it had to be the Beatles. Why? Why the Beatles? Because they are absolutely worthy of of deep study. Um, and the thing about the Beatles is that deep study does not get boring or tedious in any way. Uh, even the trivia, which I would I would argue the definition of trivia anyway, but. Um, even trivia is actually, in the Beatles' case, interesting. It's just extraordinary how how interesting those guys were. Everything they did and touched, and the wider network of the people around them and the world that they lived in, um, is historically, culturally, very strong indeed. They were absolutely the centre of a storm, um, and what they created in the 1960s, now half a century ago, was already remarkable in its time but for it to have lasted half a century uh, and still sound fresh and good and still be influential and and still be in some way current well that's a whole kind of remarkable that we could not have foreseen so they are richly deserving of a proper investigative scholarly history uh, but at the same time um, since they were so incredibly infectiously amusing and engaging the book should be that too um, because it must reflect who they were and on that basis you can really write a, a a page turner you know you can make history a page turner with this subject and that's what i'm trying to do what's the biggest challenge involved in a project like this is it is it simply logistical or or does self-doubt creep back in or, or what's the biggest challenge um the biggest challenge i don't know about biggest challenge because i don't necessarily rank or rate challenges in order of difficulty um there are just lots and well, lots is, is an understatement there are just hundreds if not thousands of obstacles that one must overcome in order to write a book like this um and some of them 
are larger and some of them are smaller than others. Um, but they all have to be jumped. And um, it, it would be hard to just pick out one or two, really. I mean, organization of information is a, is a huge one, absolutely huge. Um, that's my biggest day-to-day challenge, I suppose, is is keeping structure to this vast, vast welter of, of information that needs to be organized um, in order for the book to be written. Um, an awful lot of personal relationships have to be formed with the people that I'm reaching out to. They, I have to show that, uh, demonstrate that I am worthy of their trust, uh, that I will honor them and what and their role in this story. Uh, and by that, I don't mean only be nice to them in print, because I'm not interested in just being nice to people. But I mean honor their trust in me. So if they're prepared to show me things, open up to me divulge whatever it is that I'm asking them, then I must prove myself worthy of of their belief in me. So that means maintaining an awful lot of relationships. Um, and every relationship is different. You know, some are high maintenance, some are low maintenance. You know, that must all be done in a kind of polite English way. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I I have an absolute love for what I do. Um, um, you know, I love this subject. Again, I must stress I'm not out to, I say this in a number of interviews, I'm not out to polish the Beatles' reputation to say how great they were. This is not a book, this is not a fanboy's book, far from it. This is a historian's work. Um, but I happen to love this subject. That doesn't mean I won't write negatively about it, because I will, but I love it. Um, it's a subject that I've never, I can't remember life without it since it was there from the age of when I was five. And um, I think that comes across to people when I, when I approach them. I think they can see how passionate I am to get this right. And that, that often reaps, you know, good dividends in, in the people will open up. Can you, can you recall your earliest exposure to the Beatles music? I mean, you were born in 1958, so you were sort of, you would have been quite young, I guess, when they first started to break in, in, in the UK. Um, but can you recall your earliest exposure to them? Um, it's a funny thing, this, because I'm always asking people uh, or trying to entice from people um, using, you know, um, whatever means, um, accurate memories of events of 50-odd years ago. But in my own personal life, it's becoming a bit of a blur uh, I know it was 1963. Um, sometimes I think it was Please Please Me that did it for me. Sometimes I think it was Twist and Shout. I'm beginning not to remember. Um, a vague memory of being in my bedroom as a five-year-old boy and hearing them. Uh, my mother had a photograph of them on the kitchen door in late 1963, which was very unusual for her to do anything like that. She was a woman of uh, 39 by then. Um why did she cut out a group of, you know, a pop group and put them on the door for the same reason that they were, they were catching the attention of most of the population, which was that they were so interesting. They were so original. They looked great. They were funny and their music was wonderful. And in that time period, I did hear their music and I loved it. Um, I don't remember pop music before the Beatles in this country, it was Cliff Richard. He was our big star. He was our Elvis, if you like, though we loved Elvis in a sense more than, more than America did. But Cliff was the local hero. But I don't remember him at all before the Beatles. It was as if the first thing I heard was the Beatles. 
And I remember that it struck me in the way that it clearly struck literally millions of other people, which was it just sounded great. I just thought, what's that? It made me feel good. And um, I was a Beatles fan and I never stopped. Staying, staying in Britain in the 1960s, um, you've talked about this a bit in other interviews, but it, it's fascinating to me. Tell me how the Beatles changed the class system in Britain. It's a hard thing to say they changed the class system, but they certainly opened up possibilities. The class system is something that's been entrenched here for a very long time and is still entrenched. Uh, and it would be a fool who says that they actually in any way dismantled it. But what they did do was lever a change, if you like, um, in those years in that they didn't pretend to be something that they were not. Um, and what they were was um, four working class guys from the north of England who spoke with a Liverpool accent. And at that time um, in, in Britain, really, if you wanted to get on, you would try to disguise your regional accent and um, and pretend you spoke like, you know, posh Londoner like voices you would hear on the BBC. And simply by being themselves, I mean, most of the changes, in fact, all the changes that the Beatles made were done as a natural byproduct of their, of them being themselves. They were not trying to engineer social change. They were not even trying to be the biggest act on the planet. They were just doing what they wanted to do, and it caught fire um, in a way that nothing ever, ever had before or ever has since. And um, so because they were from Liverpool and because they were themselves and didn't try to be anything other than what they were, um, it, it appealed to people. Um, they appeal to people on so many levels. It's, um, you, it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to actually write them all down because it's, it's very fine detail, but, and different people, uh, experienced it in different ways, but unquestionably just by being themselves, they opened up the opportunities for other people to be themselves, for other regional accents to suddenly start materializing. And suddenly what, one of the things I love about the Beatles as a byproduct of their success is that you've got people in Britain, in other parts of Britain, pretending they're from Liverpool. Well, Liverpool was not a place you would wish to pretend yourself from at any time before the Beatles or indeed much time since the Beatles. Um, And then you've got in 1964 and beyond people all around the world pretending they're from Liverpool. Well, that is You mean in terms of putting on the accent? In terms of putting on the accent or just believing that it must be this kind of most heavenly place on the planet. Um, You know, what a wonderful place it must be because the Beatles come from there. And Liverpool is a wonderful place. But if you went there in the 1960s, as some fans did as Beatle tourists, I mean, Liverpool thrives on it these days. But in the 60s, it began as a trickle uh, tourism. And um, they were were entering a, a desperately poor, deprived city that was terribly run down and was not in any way like nirvana (laughs) right so what was going on in liverpool in the 50s that allowed a rock music scene to thrive there because it seems sort of unusual and i haven't quite uh i've never really understood this like why why did liverpool produce the beatles really what was going on in the 1950s in liverpool a a, a great combination of many things first of all um We're talking here of the world's only, and I'm choosing my words with care, the world's only rock and roll scene. 
There wasn't one in London. There wasn't one in New York. There wasn't one in LA or San Francisco or Chicago. There were music scenes. There was, you know, obviously jazz in New Orleans and um, and rhythm and blues in Chicago in a in a relatively small way, um, and things like that. But in terms of a rock scene with clubs and bands, it didn't exist anywhere except Liverpool. So why was it in Liverpool? Combination of factors, chief among them being the fact that in the middle of the 19th century, which is where my book begins, there is a great influx of Irish population into Liverpool. They pour into Liverpool, including the Lennons who come from County Down and um, um, in a few years' time, the Harrisons who come from Wexford or the, at least the, the, George's mother's side, they were called French, uh, and Paul's mother's family who come from Ireland as well. Um, Liverpool takes on a different hue to its population in the late part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century with a vast influx of Irish. And Irish are very musical people. They like singing and they like sitting in the pub with a beer and singing. Um, And Liverpool became a very musical city as a result. It was also terribly badly damaged in the Second World War Um, the Germans actually had a plan, documented plan, to wipe Liverpool off the map. And although they didn't succeed, they had a bloody good go. And um, it was very badly damaged. And those repair, those um, sores that the German bombs caused were not repaired after the war with anything like the speed that they were repaired elsewhere. Liverpool was a city that wore its war damage um, for a lot longer than anywhere else. Um, And this was a country, England, that was bankrupted by the war. We had rationing for 10 years after the war. There were no luxuries here. The Beatles were all war babies who grew up in a time of austerity. And um, the combination of the arrival of rock and roll music from America and skiffle music, which actually was American too, but through an English filter, at the same time in 1956-57, energized a generation of teenage boys who were war babies born in the 19, early 40s, like John Lennon, born in 1940, Richie Starkey, Ringo Starr, that is, born in 40, Paul in 42, George in 43, and a great many others, encouraged them to pick up musical instruments and start playing. Uh, so it was a number of factors The thing is, Liverpool had so many of these groups that wanted to play that there was enough scope for a scene to emerge in which promoters would put on dances. Most of the, they were all playing at dances. They weren't playing concerts or the word gigs doesn't even apply either. They were playing dances really. Um, Because this was before people danced to records. They were danced to live bands. Groups was the word, groups. And, um, you could then there would be this hall would be open on a Monday night. That hall would be open on a Tuesday night. This hall will be open on a Wednesday night. And come the weekend, which was always the peak time, there were loads of opportunities for these groups to play. So that meant that quite quickly groups could become professional. And there were a handful of professional groups in Liverpool. That is guys who only earned a living from doing this, didn't have day jobs. And the Beatles were among that professional elite. Um, which meant they could focus entirely on music, which in any other part of the country or world was something you could only do at evenings and weekends because you had a job in the daytime. Hmm. 
So, so Liverpool just became this thriving scene. It had its own newspaper, Merseybeat. It had, it had so much going for it, but no one was outside Liverpool was paying any attention to it. And one of the strengths of the Beatles story is that they were allowed to develop a very long way without anyone noticing, without anyone outside Liverpool noticing. So that when they broke through, they were so experienced. There was nothing they couldn't take in their stride. And they just they just walked through the 1960s um, without anything deterring them. They just, whatever scene was going on, if they make a film, fine, made a film. You know, go and play a stadium, fine, we'll go and play a stadium. Nothing phased them because they had all this experience. Hmm. That's Yeah, that's fascinating. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about India, uh, because you and I share an interest in the Beatles' experience in India. Yes. How do you think going to India in 1968 changed the Beatles? Oh, it changed everything. <laughs> it's a turning point. Um, the, the answer to your question is wrapped up. I mean, no element of the Beatles story can exist in isolation, although many of them are complete tales within themselves, by which I mean they've got beginnings, middle and ends. But we're talking here about the ongoing lives of some very interesting people. And um, they go to India as a result of a desire to go there that had started some months earlier and in George's case, a couple of years earlier. George had already been twice, three times by the time the Beatles went there. They actually went there together in 66 for a couple mm. of days. Um, and then George went there again in 66 and in 68, early 68. So by the time they go there in February to April 68, they've been, India's been within their sights for quite a long time. But they, they don't all want to, get the same thing from it or be there for the same length of time. One of the things that makes me laugh about Beatles literature, and this was happening right from the start in the 1960s, is that you would get the Beatles say in an interview, you know, the Beatles remarked whatever, as if all four of them spoke at the same time with one voice. They, sh they had a lot of common interests and there was this wonderful thing that they had whereby if one person, one of the Beatles got into something, they would all four enthuse about it. But India was something that they actually wanted something different from. And when they went there, they had different experiences, even though they're in the same place. And when they came back, they were different people. So the Beatles pre-India, pre-Rishikesh we're talking here, and post-Rishikesh are different and it certainly fragmented them, even just on a practical level. I mean, Ringo went home, I think, after only two or three weeks or something like that. Um, Paul went home shortly after. George and John stayed on a little longer. But even just in terms of that, um, I think it, it fragmented them. It literally did. Um, it, 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 no one seemed to take any exception to Ringo leaving early um, because he had good cause. Uh, Maureen, was his wife, was not happy there and they were missing the kids. And... He went there for two weeks. I mean, that's wonderful. Um, I don't know that – I'm looking into this, but I, I have a feeling that George wasn't too enamoured of Paul leaving when he did. Hmm. Uh, and they also – both John and George knew whilst they were there for a month without Paul and Ringo that things were being done in their name by Paul back in London that they weren't party to, which they wouldn't discover in, in fullness until they got home. Uh, and that particular that doesn't seem to upset John very much, but it did upset George. 
So George and Paul's relationship post Rishikesh was different to the pre Rishikesh one. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't considered that before. Mm. So what, b- before I let you go, what would you say are the main questions that are driving this project forward as it, as it stands right now? Like what, what, what do you still want clarity about in terms of the Beatles story? Everything. <laughs> Absolutely everything. I, I take a lot of examples from the Beatles in the, the in the, the, their mentality to the way they were. I, not many people actually stop and think about it, but the Beatles achieved all they achieved and have lasted as long as they have because of their attitude to things. And they, 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 they always kept an open mind about things. And I must maintain an open mind in everything I do. So I'm looking for everything. Um, the best, the best research rewards might come from the, the smallest thing that no one else would be looking for, but I must look for everything and find and report what I find. Um, I'm looking for the bigger picture, but I'm also looking for the smaller picture would be another way of putting it because it's all one picture. And, um, so my focus is, is, is everywhere. Um, which is, you know, I mean, I, I understand, of course I do. And I'm gratified that so many people out there having read TuneIn are hungry for book two. What a compliment and an honor that is to me and to the Beatles story. Um, but books like this can't be done quickly and they w- it would be self-defeating to actually rush them. Um, I, not that I'm going to take forever because obviously I need to get these books done and out in my own life story, apart from telling theirs. Um, but if they're rushed, then they will be compromised in ways that I'm not prepared to do. So uh, I'm working flat out. Um, volume two, I'm still shooting for publication in 2020. I hope to make it, but we'll see. Um, but if, if not, then it'll be soon after. The point is, the job must be done properly. I couldn't agree more. Mark Lewison, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Zachary. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Mark Lewison. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did. And you can learn more about Mark and his work on the Beatles at marklewison.net. And let me just also take a moment to recommend his tremendous first volume of the biography of the Beatles called Tune In. It's really, really, it's one of my favorite music books. It's extremely well-written and well-researched. And I suppose it's primarily aimed at Beatles obsessives like me. But really, if you have any interest whatsoever in the history of the band, in the history of popular music, you really owe it to yourself to check this out. It's, it's just a tremendous read. It's called Tune In, and you can find it through Amazon and booksellers all over the world. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm, I'm brand new at this, if you can't tell. I'm still finding my way around, still finding my feet. Um, so I appreciate you taking a chance on you know, a, new, a new podcast. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more, the best thing you can do for me is leave a rating and a review on iTunes. So even if you just have a minute, if you just click how many, however many stars you want uh, and subscribe to the show, that really, really helps new podcasts get off the ground. So it would be absolutely tremendous if you could leave a rating and review or just subscribe on iTunes. That would be really great. So until next time, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you once again for listening. I really appreciate it. And remember that life is short. 
So be sure to listen to good music and enjoy yourself. And I'll talk to you again very soon. Bye.